Well, as you all know, we are going through the book of Genesis, um, not so much uh, line by line as much as it's episodically. And so today we're covering all of chapter four and however many minutes we have together. Um, you may also know that one of our elders, Josue Sanchez, is um, venturing to plant a church in this next year or so. And if you remember this, if you were around our church in the beginning, seven years ago, it seemed like, and if you were part of our leadership team or you did anything really involved around kind of making decisions, just like many of you, if you go out and plant this church with Josue in the next year or so, by the way, launching April of 2023, leaving this May from their neighborhood group, their neighborhood group will no longer be a neighborhood group. It will be, what is it going to be called? A launch team, a core team, a missional core these things are yet to be decided. And these types of little decisions, I can tell you right now, Josue is laboring over, what do we call this little thing? Do we call it a launch team? Because if it is, then you're kind of uh, focused on, a, on an event and you're launching something. Is it called a missional core? Is it called a core team? Oh, what, what are we going to call it? Every little decision carries with it more weight when you're starting something new. And that's how it was with us in the beginning of this whole thing. It's why we called it a missional core because it's better than launch team, just saying. Um, nonetheless, but we did call it that, and we called it that because it's like we're trying to set a precedent here. We're trying to create a culture, even if no one else notices, we're trying to create a culture for people to live in, not an event, not a thing, but a, a place so they can become a part of something. It's no knock if he goes launch team. If you're planting this, this, this team with him and you're like, we're going launch team. Awesome. Praise God. He's got a reason for it. Right? He's setting a precedent on some level or another, and the Lord is setting precedent here in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. We saw sin last week break forth upon the earth for the first time, and the precedent that God was setting on how we should understand that God deals with sinners is not through condemnation, but through invitation. This great, big, powerful God who flung everything into existence exactly as he wanted... And now all of a sudden, everything gets flipped upside down. And he doesn't condemn. He doesn't start over right away. He does eventually. But even that is not really a matter of judgment for the eight, for the world, yes. Even that is a measure of grace. So what is God doing as he, we now see in Genesis 4, worship being introduced? Like for the first time, we really see worship being introduced. We see culture as a whole being, uh, uh, being brought together and cultivated as Adam and Eve pursue the cultural mandate of filling the earth, multiplying, ruling over all of creation. And now they're passing that down to their kids. They're passing that down to their baby boys, Cain and Abel. And as they're growing up, they're seeing them and they're seeing this this discipleship take root. You see, just as we read, though, in the fall, God's promise of sin and death take root as well. And we see that promise of sin and death continuing on through what we just read. Cain killing his brother Abel. And yet God, God sought out Adam and Eve. He will also seek out Cain. Adam and Eve confessed their sin and he provided a covering for their sin in Genesis 3, 21, when he covered them with animal skin, not fig leaves, but more eternal with a sacrifice, right? God sought sinners. That was the precedent that he set last week. And today, he continues on with that precedent. It could be really easy to think about Genesis 4 to be really depressing, 
like Cain invents murder. He invents it. It's part of now who we all are in, in, in following in under the line of Adam. It would be really easy to go down to the pressing road, but I think there's something greater here to be found, and that is God's precedent of grace. God's precedent of grace. You see, I think it would be a, a really good exercise, if you have some time, or even if you don't, to pursue Genesis 4, read it carefully, and think of all the ways that God could have done one thing. It could have been far more harsh, far more difficult, but instead he sets a precedent of grace. It would be great for you to go and do personal study this week because there are far too many reasons that you could count, that I can count and preach on today. But nonetheless, I implore you to go get in your scriptures and just go and dig through all the ways that you see God's grace amidst craziness breaking out on the earth. But before we do some grace, we'll talk about a little bit of that. The first thing I want us to do is the first thing that the text does, I think. And that us shoot out a warning. A warning flare over all of us suburbanite Christians in America that not all worship is equal. Not all worship matters. And we have to understand that because here's, I just want us to think about, put ourselves in this passage, right? We're but most of us, many of us, are a bunch of young parents. They had really not really great models for family discipleship. And so you're just trying to figure it out. And if you could just kind of put yourselves into the footsteps of Adam and Eve. Like, there's no model there. They've messed up the one relationship they had with the father. And yet you can just see them with their baby boys, Cain and Abel, over dinner, telling that beautiful story that they knew in the garden. That God created all things and called it good. That he gave us responsibilities on the earth to work, to cultivate, to produce. That, that then God did something crazy out of dad. He took a rib and created your mom. And I mean, just you should have been there that day. That was just crazy. Right? It was, it was good and it was right. But then, you know what, boys? We sinned. We got deceived. And, and we, we took a fruit that we weren't supposed to take. We ate it, we consumed, we coveted, and we consumed. And God in his righteous judgment kicked us out of the perfect place, the only place we could have ever imagined being. He kicked us out, and he'll never let us go back, boys. I mean, this, this happened thousands of years ago, millions depending on what your theology is, and yet it's also happening here. Because aren't we doing some similar rhythms in our own family, telling the story of who God is, and in one of our kids, or a couple of our kids, or prayerfully, mercifully, all of our kids, it's taking root. You can start to see the truths of Scripture taking root in their hearts. But there may be one or two where you don't see the truths of Scripture taking root in their hearts. Instead, it's resentment. Instead, they're looking at their siblings and going, why do you favor them? Why do you keep thinking that maybe they're doing all the great things on the world. You know, I'm great too. I may not worship the way that you want me to worship. I may not pray the way you want me to. I may not even enjoy church, but I'm, I'm, I'm good too. You see, we see this unfolding in our own families. I know it because I know most of our stories. I know my story. I know my story of growing up in the same household as my sister, and yet we have two radically different interpretations of the kind of household that we grew up in. 
This is what happens in families. This is what happens in families on this side of the fall. But I want you to see that not all worship is equal. See, if we look a little bit different and start uh, uh, deeper and start looking at the scriptures, what will we find is that Cain and Abel are both religious. They both sacrifice something and they both take it to the Lord as an offering. Let me just read a little bit in verse 3 and the first part of 4. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. I want you to notice, because there's a lot of speculation about why Cain was rejected and why Abel was accepted, and it has nothing to do with the type of thing that they brought. The grain offering is acceptable in the law, and as Moses is retelling this story, having it written down and now retelling it to the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel have been like, okay, it's not the type of sacrifice that they brought. Instead, the hint is in the text as to why Abel was received and Cain was rejected, and it's right there. Cain brings some of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brings the best of the best. The firstborn and the fatty portions. He brings the best of the best of what he has and he brings it to the Lord. And that's the beautiful reason. It's not a matter of what you have. It's a matter of really how you bring it and what it is that you're taking and sacrificing for your God. See, not all worship is equal. What, 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 what honors God, the worship which honors God is done out of a heart of delight and not duty. You may be saying to yourself as you hear this story about Cain, I identify with Cain though. I'm doing my best over here. You may be thinking to yourself, well, they both, they both brought something. I mean, he didn't sit out worship. It's not like he, he just totally just disregarded the requirement to come and bring an offering. He brought something. And that's true. But remember, God is setting precedence. He is setting standards here of worship, and he's not just pleased with something, with our leftovers, with whatever we have laying around. We're not like MacGyvers trying to come up with what is acceptable for worship. There's something like a paperclip and a piece of gum and something else over here. Okay, Lord, I've made you this beautiful thing. No, no, there's got to be more intentionality than just whatever's laying around in our hearts. He's not pleased with just something. He wants our best. And you may again say, well, surely God is simply okay with me showing up or my good intentions or playing the part of a religious culture of playing along and doing what others expect me to do. And I would just plead with you to hear me. That is the worship of Cain and not Abel. I don't want to pour on in condemnation, but I do want to just set a very clear understanding. There's no middle ground here. It's the worship of Cain and not Abel. Our culture is full of people who are going through the religious motions and calling it worship because we showed up and we may have even raised our hands above our belt. I was at a gathering this week and the guy that was leading worship, they were like, all right, Baptists, you're down here. Pentecostals, you're, you're over here. Actually, you're not even staying in the same in- entrance. Like, you're everywhere. But Baptists are here. And I found myself going, yes, Lord, amen. But nonetheless, right, our culture is full of people just showing up, going through the motions. And and here's the reality. We need a heart analysis of not just what what we're bringing to the Lord, but how we're bringing it and why. You see, how we worship reveals what we value. It reveals what we value, or as Jesus put it, 
For where your heart is, or excuse me, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart follows your treasure. And the precedent that Cain and Abel's worship is setting is that whatever, whatever we give reveals our heart. God accepts Abel and then his offering, and the same happens with Cain. It's not that the offerings were all that good or bad. It's that their hearts, their hearts revealed their offerings. And the sacrifice offered uh, represents the heart offering it. If we bring our best to the Lord, we reveal that we value him as top priority over all things. But when we grumble on the way to the altar, when we grumble on the way to the altar about the cost or, or the convenience or the lack thereof, or, or perhaps we sit it out because our hearts aren't right, we follow, friends, in the way of Cain. See, if I could just sit down a little bit on this, not all worship is equal, I just want to dig in just a little bit, because I think this is really where we are as a church, where the American church is, really. But there's a great danger that we would just count showing up the great success of our day. But that is not the success of our day. That cannot be the thing that we value as success. As a matter of fact, for those of you who started with our church long ago, right before we were about to launch, we use that word too, right before we were about to launch on Easter of 2015, we sat down with our missional core and we said, so... We're about to do this thing. We just spent months trying to figure this thing out. And we're about to go on Easter Sunday. And we're going to go at Frost for the first time. And it's going to be great, maybe. And, and, and what will it be that we count as success? We went around the room. We started taking answers. It's going to look like this. It's going to look like that. It's going to be 200 people. It's going to be 50 people. And it's going to be this. And it's going to be that. It's going to be great. And I said, what if success just meant faithfulness? What if success just meant faithfulness? We cannot in this culture count success as attendance, or as they call it, butts and bucks, nickels and noses, but truly the measure of worship and the discipleship that we have is, is, is faithfulness unto our King. Worship, which comes from delight, sees the worth of God, and they find no cost associated with it. Why again, Jesus' words out of Luke 9 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, the heart which delights in God sees the high cost of denying himself and follows Jesus because they know, right? Isn't this what we think? That Jesus is going to give you a better life? No. We see the cost of denying yourself and follow Jesus because he's worth it. Because he's worth it. No matter if our life turns out great or if it falls into shambles, that's not our hope. Our hope is the fact that Jesus, the king, is worth whatever cost we have, we incur. You see, friends, the result of pretending that you love God is fatal. Because you talk yourself into thinking, thinking that God should accept your leftovers. We just had leftovers last night in our home. I don't know what you had. But our kids, we brought our kids home from a friend's house. No, you can't stay over there for dinner. You know, come over here and eat our leftovers. And they were like, okay, great. Something about leftovers that just aren't really appeasing or appealing. And yet when we pretend that we love God through our bringing our, our just whatever we got, just a little paper clip and a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this, man, we all of a sudden start talking ourselves into 
Man, God should lower his, his standards for me. If he understood my circumstances, how difficult it is, if he just understood what my life was really about and not just reigning from wherever he is, if he would just understand me, then he would just lower his standards. That we're all of a sudden the exception to the rule. And when he doesn't do that, because he doesn't, when he doesn't do that, we have a choice. Resentment or repentance. Resentment or repentance. See, Cain's rejection led to his resentment. He starts seeing his brother Abel as somehow more worthy than he is, and he becomes angry. In verse 5, that's what the Lord says. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? And the God who is setting a precedent of grace intervenes in verse 6. Let's just read it. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why are you angry? And why has your face Fallen. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. It wants to consume you, but you must rule over it. Let me just set aside and just say, if you are a person in this room who has suffered wrong at the hands of another, our God has been intervening with wrongdoers from the beginning. He's been trying to talk them out of whatever it is that they're thinking about doing. And what we know about the text is that Cain goes and convinces his brother to go out into the field. See, what we also know is that out in the field is where premeditated crime happens. You bring people out. You lure them out from the safety of others where no one else is around. And you do what you know you're set out to do. And yet God is intervening with the kind of sinner that hurts people on purpose. If you're that person in this room, my heart breaks for you. The Lord hearts breaks for you. But I'm going to just tell you right now, he's been intervening for a long time with wrongdoers. He's been intervening for a And it may not always end up the way that you had hoped, but he's been intervening with the wrongdoer and pleading with that person, don't do what you're about to do. And yet because of the fall, we are slaves to sin. And so I think most of us probably start to think about, well, I think I more identify with Abel in this story. I'm the righteous person that brings a righteous and good and, and, and the fatty portions of my sacrifice. Just look at my track record. No, no, don't plead with God to look at your track record. Don't identify with Abel. Identify with Cain in this story because then mercy and, and compassion will start to pour out of you as you start to remember the kind of mercy that God has shown you that you don't deserve for him to talk to you you don't deserve for him to intervene with all the things that you have premeditated in doing. And for the person who is intent, if you're in this room and you have murder in your heart, anger against a brother or a sister, if you are thinking about harming yourself or thinking about harming another, God is calling out to you. Repent. Rule over your sin by the power of the Spirit or it will devour you. Remember the language of 1 Peter 5 that the, the enemy is prowling like a lion. We stand against it by the blood of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. That Romans 6 says, don't let sin rule over you anymore. It has no power, but let grace rule in your hearts. Oh man, the precedent of grace is right here in Genesis 4. You see, the offer for Cain from God is to repent, not resentment. To give your best, to go back, to, 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 to give your, your worship like you know you should. 
course, Cain doesn't do that. Cain's worship flows from a heart of duty. And so what I ask you here today, I would ask you, does your heart follow in the line of Cain or in the line of Abel? Cain's heart flows from duty and focuses on cost. It produces resentment. It culminates in him killing his brother out in the field. And then in verse 16, if you just flip over, it says this, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. It also culminates in a walking away from God altogether. We start to get resentment about holiness. You start to turn into a Pharisee and start wondering what it is that Jesus is really about. You start having self-righteous standards of holiness and all of a sudden the righteousness of Jesus is a distant memory and you walk away. Is your, Cain flow, is your worship flowing from a heart of Cain, of duty? Or is it flowing from a heart of Abel, which flows from a heart of delight? It doesn't focus on cost, it focuses on worth. It produces joy and the attitude which embraces the value of he who's being worshipped rather than the, ca- the cost of the worshiper, even if it means losing your life or your job or your status on whatever social media platform that you're trying to build. Vanity, vanity. I can't get into that, all right? I went to that last week. I can't go there again. As we know, God's plea with Cain ends in vain and Cain kills Abel, is non-repentant over his sin, and he lives under the curse of God as a fugitive. fugitive. An unrepentant Cain asks for leniency. I don't know about you, but I, I see myself in how I relate with Cain or how I relate with the Lord. I see myself in how Cain's relationship with the Lord is, and I just start thinking that I don't want all that punishment. I don't want all, I deserve far worse than what I've gotten. Lord, leniency, mercy, it's too much. I find myself absolutely identifying myself with Cain through all this. I pray that you do as well, because God's response reveals his heart. And what does his response reveal? That God has common grace for sinners. God has common grace for sinners. In this next section of the test, what we find is that God is is dispensing grace towards all people in a common way. And you might be thinking, what is common grace? Well, common grace is truly this, that God is favorable to all people. Jesus said it best in in Matthew 5. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And that is in the context of him telling us to love your enemies. Why does he tell us to do that? Because God loves his enemies in a common way. He doesn't just keep rain from evil people. He he lets it rain on their fields too. He produces and provides a crop for them as well. That's common grace. When I start thinking about the precedent that God is setting here, this one blew me away. Not just that he let Cain live, but he answered his prayers. Like he answered God, like a murderer's prayers right away. He didn't take vengeance upon him. He didn't murder him as well. He didn't take him out, even though that was clearly uh, the, the right reward for sin is death. No, he doesn't do that. He gives common grace, not special grace. Special or saving grace is that God gives you the gift of faith by grace to believe in the name of the Son 
Jesus. If you are a believer, there's a special measure in which God showed himself to you. Don't take it for granted, friend. The rest of the world doesn't have what you have. And if you're not a believer, you don't even know what you're missing out on. It's more beautiful. It's like Aggie Land in some ways. Excuse me. It's more beautiful than you could have ever imagined. You can't explain it from the inside and you can't understand it from the outside. And all the Aggies said, and everybody else went, oh, for the love. <laughs> there is a, anyways, I won't go down that road. God's grace is far greater than we could ever imagine. His saving grace is even greater than this common grace, right? He gives us something that we would never deserve in salvation. And we, we often think about that, but we often neglect common grace. We often neglect how God is truly dispensing his favor over absolutely evil. We just look at Cain's life and we start to see it, right? We start to see this common grace all over Cain's life. Cain, Cain doesn't deserve to be talked to by God. He doesn't deserve to have God hear his prayer. He doesn't deserve to even draw a breath. Yet God preserves his life, hears his prayer, protects Cain from vengeance, protects him, and relieves his fear of revenge. And I don't know about you, but I read Genesis 4, I go, okay, who are these people marrying? Who is Cain afraid of? When I start to think about it, they lived like 900 years. Like they're real old. Like their 40s are 400s. And so I start thinking, okay, he's not necessarily concerned about a current person that's going to kill him. Maybe his dad. Maybe his mom. He's concerned about his future siblings that are going to come over the next 900 years that someone is going to take vengeance upon him. And yet God protects him, puts a mark on him. We don't know what the mark is, but he puts a mark on him to make sure that he is protected. This is all common grace. And it continues on in verse 17. Look at verse 17 of Genesis chapter 4. Cain knew his wife. Apparently he married someone, his sister, a sister, somewhere down the line. Creepy for us, not creepy for them. Hopefully creepy for you. <laughs> Cain knew his wife. She was fertile. Right? This is a common blessing amongst the evil and the good. She conceived and bore Enoch. What did he do? He built the first city that there ever was in verse 17, Cain did. But if you start thinking about that, like the, um, the amazing amount of intellect that that would have taken to do, common grace. God could have taken his common sense, but he, he let him have it. If you kept reading in verse 19, there is great amounts of sin in verse 19. Lamech, one of Cain's descendants, he had two wives. Polygamy is now introduced in Cain's line, and yet God continues to be gracious. How so? Lamech's uh, descendants, they're the inventors of music, of musical instruments. Just read with me. Read with me right here in verse 21. His brother's name was, no, no, yeah, Jabal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. I sent a page of a commentary to our, the one and only metallurgist. Is that even a word? Rodney, is that right? 
Yes, thank you. I, like the commentary I was reading was like, Cain's descendants invented metallurgy. And I'm like, bro, he's, got, he's a metallurgist right there. Got to send that to the guy. Common grace. Some people say that by the time the flood came, the line of Cain was in the billions. Civilization is taking off in the line of Cain underneath the curse of the fall, and it's not good. It's evil. And yet God continues to let it go. I would say for us, I wonder, in a culture not necessarily known for evil, but in a culture of consumerism, and we can equate God's blessing with bigger and faster and stronger and sparklier and shinier and happier, but is it? See, Cain's descendants start to create all sorts of culture that's loud and shiny and somewhat happy, but that doesn't mean God has blessed it in the way that he so wants it. See, for all intents and purposes, he lived a successful life. He had kids. He settled down in a city, even though God said he would be a, a wanderer. He overcame negativity. He, 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 his grandbabies went on to invent music and musical instruments and efficiency and commerce. But in the background of all that, I just hear Jesus' words inviting us into something greater. Out of Mark 8, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? You see, Cain didn't have the presence of the Lord. And so I would ask us, I'm compelled to ask us, are you content with success outside of God's presence? In a common grace manner, or do you have a compelling draw back into the presence of God, into discovering what it is that He wants in the earth and how it is that you can be feathered into that beautiful and perfect will? That, 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 that drawing you back, man. Don't settle for gaining the whole world and doing so outside of God's desires and presence. You can lose the world and gain God. And I would ask you, is that enough for you? Is he enough for you if he gives you nothing else? Is he enough? Or do you need all of his blessings to go along with the promise of his son Jesus? Do you need an easy life? Do you need smooth circumstances? Do you need corona to go away? Do you need to be restored into whatever? Whatever's been lost in order for you to follow Jesus, will you follow him no matter what happens? You see, as you end this part of chapter 4, there's a great question. We had a teaser last week that there was this promise of a redeemer. In Genesis 3.15, I read it on purpose. Number one, Josue would be mad at me because he likes to use the word proto-euangelion, and I didn't even say it last week, but there it is just for you. Verse 15, the first gospel, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, there will come a day when a snake crusher is promised and he will come and we are left going. So who's the redeemer that's been promised out of Genesis 3.15? Is it Cain? Is that the line from which... The Redeemer is going to come, or is it Abel? Abel's dead, and now we got Cain. What's going to happen? Where is this promised one going to come from? And then we read verse 25 and 26, really just 26, that God gave Adam and Eve a third son, Seth. 
And verse 26 says, And to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And you might be thinking to yourself, like, what's the big deal? Well, in your growth groups coming up soon, you will read Luke chapter 3. And in Luke chapter 3, you will be tempted to skip because it's a bunch of names that you don't like to pronounce. And you go, oh, okay, yeah, cool, just a bunch of names. Don't skip the names because it points you back to things like Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 because in that genealogy of Jesus, he starts with Joseph, goes back through David, we know him, goes back through Jacob, we'll find out more about him, goes through Abraham, we're also going to find out about him, and finally through Seth. The son of Adam. See, this promised redeemer in Genesis 3 is then picked up on in Luke 3. And it's for your certainty, for your faith to be built. Because all the Old Testament is going to be asking this question. Who's the redeemer? Is it Noah? Nope. Is it going to be Abraham? Mm -mm, Remember that episode with Hagar? Negative. Is it going to be David? Bathsheba, anybody? How about Solomon? That's a thousand women that he's with. There's this constant pointing forward. Who's going to be this redeemer? Who's going to have the character? Who's going to have the righteousness? Who's going to have the perfection enough to satisfy God's requirements on behalf of sinners? And no one fits the bill. No one fits the bill for thousands of years until you get to Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the promised one shows up and he fits every requirement that could ever be given to a Messiah. Of course, his name is Jesus. And so there's this great invitation for us, even amidst great death, murdering, killing, difficulty, polygamy, all sorts of awfulness. And God is training you, dear friend, to look for the thread of redemption. Be looking for mercy amidst your suffering. Be looking for rays of light amidst your darkness. Because right here at the end is the beautiful promise that there will come a time when the Redeemer will be born and set all things right. And you might think to yourself, okay, what is the big deal? We too stand in a position of looking forward waiting for the promised one to come again. How do we know it's going to happen? How do we know that God will be faithful in the ways that he said that he will be faithful? We've got to look back to Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 amidst amidst all kinds of passages and realize he has promised this before. And it's exactly as he promised. So I know, based on God's history, based on God's proven track record, that exactly how he put it down on paper is exactly what he's going to do again in the future. He will come back. He will set things right. He will make things new. Everything. Everything. God's precedent of grace invites us to look for the good amongst the evil. He is training his people to focus beyond the disappointment. And guess what? You either have been in a season of disappointment, you are in a season of disappointment, or you're headed into a season of disappointment. 
There's no getting around it. There's no mistake about it. And so there's this training that's going on even in the earliest pages of Scripture. Don't just focus on the darkness. God is doing something beyond what we can see. And He's training our hearts to not be so tethered to sight, but to faith, but to believing in the character of God. So what kind of God is doing all this? It's a God who is gracious. And evil can sometimes feel like it's taking over. David struggled with this over and over again in the Psalms. Lord, why are you letting the evil prosper? Meanwhile, the righteous are suffering. Go read a Psalm. Any. And if that's not in there, go to the next one. I'll bet it's in that one. It's all throughout the Scriptures. There's this training that's going on that don't miss amidst the loss that God is always doing something and death never has its final say. Just this week, I've been reading the book of Psalms and just kind of meditating on them throughout the week, throughout my time with the Lord. Just this week, Psalm 18. And if you're like me, you're starting to think, okay, we're 30 days into the new year and you are only on Psalm 18. I'm inconsistent too in my reading plans. But I found this nugget I thought I'd share with you this, this week. Psalm 18, 28. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. What a beautiful truth. So I don't know where you are. I don't know kind of what you're coming in with this week, but perhaps you've been coming to church for a long time. Perhaps you've been, you've been playing the part for a long time, and you, you, you know what to say. How you doing? Blessed. You know the rules, you know, you know the subculture of any given church, and you've just aimed to blend in. You need a people. I, I ain't mad at you. It's hard out there. I need a people. I also want that people to know the real me. Because that's the kind of, that's the God, that's, that's the, the, the me, the real me is the, God, is the guy that God knows. Easy for me to say. The real me is the guy, is the guy that God accepts and loves, not the one I'm pretending to be. And so whatever pressure you have felt coming into a church, whether this one or another, man, God sees through all of that and he's inviting you to come clean with him. Repent, believe in the promised one, Jesus. No other name is there found salvation. Believe in him, repent, believe in the good news of the kingdom. Don't let sin rule over you and trust in a good and gracious God who gave his best of the best. He brought his firstborn, his fatty portions, and he sacrificed it for you. See, that's the picture that we see in Genesis 4. He, he sacrificed it for all those that have the heart of Cain. Perhaps you've been coming to church for a long time and that's your story. Or perhaps you've been here and you're a believer and you've been, been recently setting your sights on productivity and achievement and success and you've kind of denied this priority of worship. I also invite you to come and believe the greater worth of Jesus rather than whatever it is that you think it's costing you. Or perhaps you've been under the spell of the enemy in some way, in some different way, which causes you to doubt that God is not good because of your suffering. You see, that was the whole point of Job, that the enemy came against Job because he thought he could find his cost. There will be a cost where he doesn't worship you, God, and he will start to worship me. And it never happens. Through thick 
and through thin. That's one of his main strategies, y'all. Suffer just enough to start doubting, to start walking away, to start not valuing his worth and walking away from Jesus in his presence. Hold fast to the tiniest scarlet thread of redemption and what he's up to. You may never understand why things are happening the way that they are happening. You may never understand, but you can train yourself to believe what Joseph declares at the end of Genesis in Genesis 50, 20, where he says, man, what others have intended for evil, God is going to turn around for good. Pray that we would believe that today and every day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for reminding us that you are the promised one. More than that, or as equal to that, that you are making things new. Two years now of chaos in this world, and many of us are fed up with what we might perceive to be your lack of intervention, your lack of mercy. But, oh Lord, there are many means of common grace. If we would just be take up our trained eye to see the, the thread of redemption that you're unfolding, even our own stories, much less in the story of Scripture, that what you promised it finds their yes and amen in Jesus. And for people here that are afraid of a God because they, they don't know what He's going to do based on some other understanding of who you are and how you deal with sinners, Lord, let us be reminded that you come in inviting even Cain. What have you done, Cain? Inviting us to come to you. And so I pray that as we go throughout this week, as we respond in just a moment, in song, and then in communion. I pray that we would trust you, that we would go no other place, find no other hiding place, no other refuge, no other portion for our soul except the Lord God Almighty, our Father who sent his Son to rescue sinners, to take our, to take our deserved wrath for sin, paying the price in full and setting us free. Pray, Lord, that we would run to you, that we would rest in you. We'd find our refuge in no other place besides you. Help us respond and worship. Help us maintain focus. Yet at the same time, uh, help us do what needs to get done in these moments. We love you. We're grateful. In Christ's name do I pray. Amen.